Do you remember the Schultz cartoon of Lucy looking after the retreating Charlie Brown? She's shouting out, The worst thing about you, Charlie Brown, is that you won't listen to what the worst thing about you is. Maybe we're all Charlie Browns. And yet, there has ever been in the Christian church a heresy known as perfectionism. As though we all could be or should be in this life perfect or else. There's nothing so frightening and so bewitching as this thought of perfection. Is it possible to be perfect? Are there any perfect people? Should a Christian settle for anything less? Isn't God perfect? What did Jesus mean in Matthew 5.48 when he said, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect? What did he mean? How perfect is perfect? Well, let's begin by looking at who we're talking about. We're talking about human beings down here. And human beings are a result of sin, if the Bible is to be believed from Genesis to Revelation. Human beings, as a result of sin, have been vitiated, incriminated, adulterated, alienated, separated from God. Through sin, the whole human organism is deranged, the mind is perverted, the imagination is corrupted. Sin is depraved of faculties. And temptations from without find an answering cord from within the heart, and our feet turn imperceptibly towards evil. Sin exists over all men as a burden, as a tyrant, and as within us as a traitor. All of us are naturally selfish, naturally weak. The biblical descriptions are not flattering. We're told in Genesis 8.21 that the imagination of man's heart is only evil continually from his youth. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 13.23 that the human heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We're told in the 17th chapter of the same book that even if an Ethiopian could change his skin or a leopard his spots, the sinner, the sinner cannot change his nature no more than the leopard or the Ethiopian. And then in Romans chapter 3, we have statement after statement about our natural condition. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have done wrong. No one does good, not even one, and so on. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held guilty before God. It says in the 19th verse of that third chapter. When you think of the biographies of Scripture, are there any perfect people in Scripture apart from Jesus? David is one of the most loved characters of Scripture, but he sinned grievously. Think of the Psalms, that revelation of the human heart. In Psalm 40 and verse 12, the psalmist says his iniquities are more than the hairs of his head. That's not too perfect. In Psalm 130 and verse 3, it says, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, who would stand? In Psalm 143 and verse 2, in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Read the penitential psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. In the latter psalm, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Think of Peter, the chief of the apostles, the one whose name always heads the list in every list of the twelve. 
Was Peter perfect? The one who denied his Lord with cursing and swearing? So Bible biography does not encourage us to think that perfection would be an easy matter or that too many have attained it. Take the Lord's Prayer. Why is it the Lord puts in this prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses? We can, for, we can understand the first part. But why this one, forgive us our trespasses? Does the Lord take it for granted there will always be trespasses to confess that will need forgiveness? Or is there a limit to the Lord's Prayer? Do we only pray the Lord's Prayer till we attain to perfection? What about the epistles? Read the last half of every epistle. It's always talking about carefulness and behaviour. It's always assuming that we each have a long way yet to go. The epistles never suggest that any of us have immaculate characters with no progress to make. Now I think of Paul, perhaps the greatest of Christians. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that he had to keep his body under, batter it black and blue, one translation says, lest having preached to others, he says, I myself should become a castaway. In 2 Corinthians 12.7, he tells us he was given a thorn in the flesh, lest he should become uplifted with pride. In 2 Corinthians 7.5, he speaks about an experience where within were fightings, without were fightings, and within were fears. And fear is sin. We were meant to trust and not be afraid. And so even Paul, the greatest of the Christians, was not perfect. Read Philippians 3 where he says, Not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I press toward the mark. But then he says a strange thing. He says, And as many of us as be perfect, be like-minded. That is, those who are perfect will confess they're not perfect. Maybe that's a clue to the meaning of the word. We'll come to that again later. In James chapter 3 and verse 2, we read, In many things we all offend. And in 1 John 1, 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And in Luke 17, 10, Christ tells the apostles, When you've done all these things, then say we are unworthy servants. Take those apostles. How perfect were they? They were argumentative. They were proud. They were cowardly. They were selfishly ambitious. In Galatians 5.17, after the cross, after Pentecost, Paul writes, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and ye cannot do the things that ye would. And this is expanded in Romans chapter 7. And I read there, verse 14, We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good. So it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in with, dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God, my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's no reason to suppose that Paul is here speaking about flagrant sins like lying and theft and adultery and so on. Rather, this is the language of a man who's in love with the law of God and the slightest evil desire 
overwhelms him with contrition and penitence. This is the language of a man who's found the great gap between the achievement of the best men and what the law actually calls for. This man knows that to take pleasure in the thought of sin is sin. This man knows that the desire to sin is sin. It's certainly not talking about flagrant transgression. But it's clear the writer did not think he was perfect. And he wasn't talking about an experience of years ago before he learnt the secret of victorious life. When he says, wretched man that I am, he doesn't mean wretched man I used to be. Well, what shall we make of all this? Perhaps we should say, surely after Pentecost it can be different. No, my friends, even after Pentecost we find the disciples imperfect. Galatians 2 says that Peter was to be blamed, that he vacillated and repeated his earlier mistake, turning his back on the Lord, really. Paul and Barnabas quarrelled and separated. Even after Pentecost, sin remained in believers, but it did not reign, and that's important because sin should not have dominion over a true believer. It exists, he must fight it, it should not dominate his life. But he does make mistakes. A walk, my friends, is just a continually interrupted falling. Well, what does Matthew 5.48 mean? If as James 3.2 says, and many things we all sin, if as 1 John 1.8 says, we cannot say we have no sin, if we're to pray, forgive us our trespasses, what does Jesus mean when he says, be ye therefore perfect? Well, we find help in the parallel passage in the Gospels in Luke chapter 6. Here we also have an account of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice what it says in the parallel passage, to be ye therefore perfect, the one that's found in Matthew 5. I'm reading now from this passage in Luke chapter 6, and I'll read from verse 35, and you'll notice it's the same context as in Matthew 5. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the selfish. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, instead of perfect here, it says merciful. Jesus means this, that a child of God will behave to other people the way God has behaved towards him. He will be a mature believer not threatened within by people's antagonisms and hatred and vengeance. He will behave to them as God has, with mercy, with love. The only perfection of which the Christian is capable is that of the mature intent of love. Be ye therefore merciful. That's the only perfection available to us in this life. Well, if these things are true, How is it there are so many perfectionists? How can they? Well, my friends, I have a basic assumption that our obligation is determined by our ability. They say God wouldn't ask more of us than we can do, but they forget the law was given to sinless Adam and God has not reduced his claims. Charles G. Finney, a wonderful man of God, was yet a perfectionist, and he would often argue like this. If it's not a practicable duty to be perfectly holy in this world, it will follow that the devil has so completely accomplished his design of corrupting mankind that Christ is at fault and has no way to sanctify his people but by taking them out of the world. If perfect sanctification is not attainable in this world, it must be either from a want of motives in the gospel or a want of sufficient power in the Spirit of God. That was Finney's argument, but my friend, it's not good enough. 
as Warfield said in later years, it would be a poor reader indeed who did not perceive at once that such dilemmas could be applied equally to every evil with which man is afflicted, not just sin, but disease, death, the uncompleted salvation of the world. If it's not a practicable thing to be perfectly well in this world, then Jesus Christ has been vanquished by the devil and has no way to make his people well, except by taking them out of the world, if Finney's right. If freedom from death is not attainable in this world, according to Finney, it must be due to want of sufficient power in the Spirit of God. If the world does not become at once the pure kingdom of God in which only righteousness dwells, then we must infer either a want of sufficient motives in the gospel or a want of sufficient power in the Son of God. There have been people who have reasoned like this. And the point of interest is that it's not different to the way Finney reasoned about perfectionism. But now notice the punchline. It is a simple matter of fact that the effects of redemption in the individual and in the world at large are realised not all at once, but through a long process, and their complete enjoyment lies only at the end. That's why mature Christians have often acknowledged the fact that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. We spoke about sin existing upon us as a burden, that's guilt. Over us as a tyrant, that's our bad habits. And within us as a traitor, that's our sinful nature. Well, justification meets the first. When we accept Jesus, we're counted righteous. That removes the burden of guilt. We have to continually come back believing because the burden threatens to roll back on us every time we make a mistake. But when we believe, we're counted as perfect. That's justification, to rid us of our burden. Sanctification, to rid us of the tyrant, the tyranny of bad habits. That's a lifetime process. While at conversion, we lose sin's dominion over us. The temptations come all through life, mainly because of what we've made of ourselves through bad habits in earlier years. It's a lifetime work to bring all our habits and ways into harmony with the law of God. And we're to travel as fast as we can. But as for the traitor of sin, our sinful nature, my friends, that'll only be solved at glorification, at the coming of Christ, when we're given a new body, a new mind, new spirit. Only then are sinful desires removed from the soul. Perfectionists usually lower the standard of the law of God. They forget that it takes in our very thoughts and desires. The Tenth Commandment only mentions a wrong thought, coveting. Perfectionists forget that. They forget about the past, that all of us owe God 10,000 talents, according to the parable in Matthew chapter 18. And that was 150,000 years of wages. It's not enough to roll up our sleeves and say, I'll make no more mistakes. We've all made enough mistakes in the past to hang us, my friends. 10,000 talents, that's the tax income approximately of California. Which of us could pay that back? It's unpayable, my friends. We have to depend on Calvary. And we also forget, if we're a perfectionist, that what we've been taints all the future. Once a stone is thrown from the hand, my friends, its future course is largely determined. And our mistakes of the past do vitiate the future. They do not mean eternal loss. Because every day can be a new day to him or her who believes. But our past does taint us. Does make it impossible for us to reach as high as we might have reached had we never sinned. 
Well, does all this mean we're to be content with our failings and our sins? Does it mean we can be careless about our mistakes? No, indeed, my friends. A Christian cherishes the highest of ideals, higher than the highest human thought can reach, is God's ideal for his children. He wants to be like Jesus Christ. She wants to be like her master and Lord. But ideals are like stars. We can guide our course by them, but we cannot touch them. God judges us by our direction, my friends, not by the occasional good deed or the occasional bad deed, but by the tenor of our habitual words and actions. Isn't that the way even our children judge us, thank God? Not by our occasional mistakes with them, but by our habitual attitude. And God judges us the same way. Justification, my friends, is continuous. It's not just something that happens at the beginning. Justification and sanctification run like two railway lines right throughout life. You know, in First Kings chapter 14 and verse 8, it speaks about David having kept all God's commandments. That's a rather remarkable statement. It speaks about David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. How could God say that? David had broken the seventh commandment and the sixth commandment. My friends, David had repented. And when we repent, God casts our sins in the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The God that could say about David, he kept my commandments, followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in mine eyes, First Kings 14.8, that God counts us as sinless for Christ's sake if we are trusting in the Saviour. Do you remember in John 15:3, Jesus said to the disciples, Ye are clean. Now, in the two chapters before, we find them apparently very far from clean, wrangling as to who would be the greatest, wouldn't wash each other's feet. But the master, after he washed their feet, would say, Ye are clean. And in John 17, he says to the Father, They have kept thy word. God looks at us through the cross. He looks at the broken law through the bloodstained mercy seat. And though you and I, in fact, are far from clean, though we have failed in so many ways to keep the word of God, yet God, for Christ's sake, says of us, ye are clean. You have kept my word. Ephesians 1.6 says we're accepted in the beloved. And Colossians chapter 2 says we're complete in him. That, my friends, is the gospel. That Christ's perfection, not ours, is the basis of our acceptance. We are saved by works, my friends, by perfect works, but not our own. Christ's perfect works. Now, this may clear up some other biblical problems, if you'll think about it. When you read the book of Psalms, it's full of accounts of confession and penitence. And yet the writers are always sure of acceptance with God. You can read in Psalm 40, Thy law is within my heart. I rejoice to do thy will. Yet the same psalm says nearby, mine iniquities are more than the hairs of my head. How do we reconcile these statements? How is it that only one psalm out of the whole batch of 150 fails to end in victory and praise? That's Psalm 88. That's the only exception. I'll tell you why, my friends. The psalmist believed in the everlasting covenant. He believed that because he was within the covenant, that through the blood of the sacrifice, through the intercession of his priest, he was accepted of God even though he was making mistakes, even though he was a sinner. 
that if his intent was to glorify God, if he was putting forth his best efforts to that purpose, then despite his stumblings, he was within the covenant and accepted by God as sinless. That's why when you read the first epistle of John, you read that everybody's either a child of God or a child of the devil. There aren't any greys there, only whites and blacks. The reason being that by righteous is not meant the ethically perfect, but the faithful, those who trust in God's goodness, those who are motivated by his love, those who respond with faith and love and obedience. Though all of these are defective. Speaking of 1 John, reminds me of 1 John chapter 3, where it says that those who are born of God do not commit sin. Now, this is a text that's often used by perfectionists. What does that mean? It's repeated twice in the chapter that the real Christian doesn't sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. Verse 8, he who commits sin is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God commits sin. Well, my friends, here again, John is talking in terms of blacks and whites. By sin, he means presumptuous transgression. Remember, the same writer in the first chapter says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. What he's talking about in the third chapter is deliberate, presumptuous transgressions. Sins of rebellion, in other words, not sins of weakness. A Christian is guilty of sins of weakness, which he hates, which he strives to turn away from. These bring no condemnation. Let me read you from the fifth chapter of this book. The same epistle of John, the first epistle, in the fifth chapter, says in verse 16, If anyone see his brother commit a sin that is not under death, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not under death. But there is a sin which is under death. I do not say he should pray for that. Now, I would recommend that you read Numbers chapter 15 and that you read Psalm 19, whereas with this chapter, the Bible distinguishes between sins that are not under death and sins that are. The sin under death, my friends, is the deliberate, rebellious transgression that says, I don't care what you think, God, I'm going to do this regardless. That can separate us from the Almighty. That can bring judgment and death if not repented of. But my friends, the sins we hate never bring condemnation. The sins of weakness do not separate us. That's why Paul, after writing the passage in Romans 7, which we read, about wretched man that I am, he followed on with this statement at the beginning of chapter 8, but there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You see, my friends, when we believe, we become the children of God. What good parent tosses a child out because of its mistakes? When a father is teaching a child to walk, if it slips again and again, does the father leave it down the last time and say, well, I'm not going to teach you anymore, stay there? Of course not. Of course not. We are the children of God. Mistakes we make like all other children. But God does not take us out of the family, my friends. He may chastise us, but he will not remove us from the family unless we deliberately, protractedly rebel. Isn't it good news to know that despite our blemishes, despite our weaknesses, despite our faults and our failings, and my friends, they are as much as the hairs of our head, we don't know most of them. What about the things left undone we should have done, the letters we should have written, the people we should have visited, the people we should have phoned, the good deeds we should have done? We're not even aware of most of our faults. 
But despite these, my friends, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're trusting in him, we are accepted in the beloved. Are we saying that God will accept even those who've committed the very worst sins and who are still weak? Yes, we're saying that. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, was a murderer. Remember, he slew that Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Paul, who wrote 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, he was responsible for the deaths of many Christians, and God accepted him. David committed adultery and murder. Peter denied his Lord with cursing and swearing. And yet these are the names that are written in heaven. How could God encourage us more than he has? Remember two things, my friends, that while we are worse than we've ever dared suspect, God is better than we've ever dared to hope. May I read to you what Luther wrote when he heard how many people were trying to explain Romans 7, 14 to 25. He was complaining that many didn't see that this passage applied even to the Christian. Note what he said. He refuses to be robbed of the consolations of the gospel. They answer, he wrote, that the apostle speaks only of the person of the wicked. But the wicked do not complain of the rebellion of their flesh, of any battle or conflict, or of the captivity and bondage of sin. For sin mightily reigneth in them. This is therefore the complaint of Paul and of all the faithful, this passage in Romans 7. For this must be our ground and anchor hold that Christ is our only and perfect righteousness. Moreover, we must labour to be outwardly righteous also, that is to say, not to consent to the flesh, which always entices us to some evil, but to resist it by the Spirit. Therefore, when a man feels this battle of the flesh that's described in Romans 7, let him not be discouraged therewith, but let him resist in spirit and say, I am a sinner, I feel sin in me, for I have not yet put off the flesh, in which sin dwells so long as it lives, but I will obey the spirit and not the flesh. When I was a monk, wrote Luther, I thought by and by I was utterly cast away, if at any time I felt the lust of the flesh. That is to say, if I felt any evil notion, fleshly lust, wrath, hatred, envy against my brother, I essayed many ways to help and quiet my conscience, but it would not be. I could not rest. Oh, if I'd rightly understood these sentences of Paul, I would not so miserably have tormented myself. I would have said, Martin, thou shalt not be utterly without sin, for you have flesh. But nevertheless, resist the flesh in the spirit. Despair not. My friends, do you see the gospel? Though you and I are sinners, God loves us and accepts us for Christ's sake. This cherish will break the dominion of sin and cause us to glorify God with all we have. God bless you.